the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to the podcast, Care of Cooper Cherry. Um, today's guest is Michel Luc Belmer. Uh, Michel is an, an artist, he's an author, he's a scholar in the realm of uh, what, what would we say political economy, anarchism, postmodernism, these are all kind of interests of yours, right Michel? Correct. Um, so you have actually published a book that can actually be found everywhere, but it's on Amazon for as a shortcut, and the title of that book, and this is primarily what I brought you on to discuss today, is the Structural Anarchism Manifesto, and uh, the subtitle being The Logic of Structural Anarchism versus the Logic of Capitalism. Yes. So I guess first off, let me ask you, Michelle, how did you, like, what was your sort of, how did you get involved or get interested in anarchism in the first place, or even like post-structuralism, post-modernism? Uh, well, let me start. Yeah, I got into anarchism more or less organically by being a graffiti artist. Oh, cool. So throughout, yeah, throughout my teens, I tended to dabble in graffiti art um, and started more or less getting involved in the anti-globalization movement where I would, I would be one of those guys who, who enjoyed spray painting during demonstrations. Um, and sort of developed into the theory that way. Um, while I was doing my undergraduate work, uh, I started studying a movement, a French movement by the name of the Situationist International, who were sort of catalysts and a movement that sort of sparked uh, the May 68 uh, demonstrations in France, or the May 68 revolution in France during 1968. Uh, which led to a sort of a general strike across France. So I sort of came into anarchism that way and sort of saw that the situation is critique, uh, which was touching upon postmodern ideas, needed to be elaborated and more or less find uh, its political economy, um, which led me more or less to develop this notion of structural anarchism, which is sort of a confluence between Marxist theory, anarchist theory, and postmodern theory. And it kind of developed, blossomed over 15 years into this manifesto, which is, I would say, some, an elaboration of um, situationist theory and anarchist theory, where it tends to focus on an attack on meta narrative. So, postmodern postmodernism had this idea that um, that theory um, that 
grand narratives were the things to be attacked. They were, they were the things to be demolished. And where postmodernist theories tend to argue that we've sort of entered an age of postmodernism, well, structural anarchism is more or less saying there's still one grand, grand narrative that, that needs to be demolished, and that is the grand narrative of bourgeois state capitalism this whole notion that through the market we will reach this opulent sort of paradise where everyone where all our needs are met which is clearly being eroded and it's not happening so structural anarchism is more or less taking this on sort of taking this notion of the destruction of grand narratives to that final conclusion that final battle which is always capitalism so I, I sort of came along that and studied that sort of aspect. And, um, but basically, it, it can, it, it's come through being on the ground and demonstrating, being an activist, and using art when I'm not involved in demonstrations as a means of expressing sort of an anti-capitalist point of view. Yeah. Why did you end up, uh, or just maybe clarify for me, why you chose Structural Anarchism as the title? Because I found that threw me a little bit because I was thinking maybe this was more like, you know, the actual structuralist, which, you know, they have the structuralist Marxist like Levi-Strauss or Althusser. So that kind of threw me a little bit in terms of why you chose that specific um, approach or title. Well, it's because I think... When you're dealing, it's a, the Structural Anarchist Manifesto is a critique of structures, specifically hierarchical structures. Okay. And it, and it puts forward the notion that we need to move towards horizontalism or the development of horizontal structures where there isn't oppression or a top-down sort of mentality, but more or less a horizontal or lateral a mentality where people work horizontally, not okay. vertically. Gotcha. Yeah, that's it. Gotcha. So you weren't really, so that, that was kind of throwing uh, me because I was getting that confused. I was like, well, what, is this a different, because I know that you, from just looking at your work and so forth, that postmodernism was, was an interest of yours. So that was kind of found a little bit confusing in, in terms of where you were coming yeah, from, but you're just more so specifically the references to anarchism itself rather than that kind of larger uh, structuralist project. It does. Well, the manifesto is also an analysis of the structure, the logical structure of capitalism. So how does capitalism propagate itself and reproduce itself on a constant basis? So it does lead back into Althusser's notion, okay, of uh, structural Marxism. But from an anarchist perspective, uh, it does away with um, Althusser's notion of the dictatorship of the proletariat or anything of that nature. It's more or less about the structure of capitalism and how, uh, how the structure of capitalism tends to repeat these, hor uh, these hierarchical, vertical sort of structures over and over. Um, and how the logic of capitalism gets encoded on almost all our daily interactions 
and all our, all, whatever is being produced by the system, all the commodities, etc., are all seem to be ingrained with the logic of capitalism. And this, in turn, gets encoded into us, where in order to exist and survive within the system, we have to function according to the logic of capitalism, predominantly. And it's this sort of thing that there's a structure to this, and that's where the structural anarchism sort of comes in as well. Like a lot of a lot of the critique towards anarchism is that anarchism doesn't have a structure; it's anti-structure. It wants the total liquidation and total chaos to to reign supreme over uh, over the whole uh, the whole uh, globe. So by stipulating that by stipulating structural anarchism, it also kind of puts a break on that that says no, anarchism does have a structure and it's a horizontalized structure. Um, essentially, I would say uh, institutions were for uh, their open participatory democracies, where involvement by the general population is maximized across the board. So that's what I would say. So aside from the situationist, who do you, is there a there set of thinkers that you primarily draw from or you find most, who's most interesting to you or kind of even compelled <laughs> or who is, who's maybe the biggest influence on your, on your work? On my, on my work, I would say, well, I, I would say the, the three main uh, anarchists would be Kropotkin, Bakunin, and Malatesta. Have a have definite an influence in that. Um, then I would say Jean-François Lyotard, uh, Althusser, Michel Foucault, and uh, and I would say also Karl Karl Marx. I think he had a very good analysis of power. Karl Marx. He understood how capitalism tends to accumulate power more than it does so capital. Power is really the, the, the fundamental game that's cap that capitalism is playing, sort of the centralization of power, the centralization uh, of money power, of purchasing power, etc. So I, I've named, what, uh, um, four or five theorists there? So they kind of, the, the manifesto kind of sits on that, on that platform. These are pillars within the manifesto. I do find it interesting because really that's sort of my introduction to the, or the, where, how I ran, wound up at anarchism is sort of th through Foucault primarily, I would say, but also Derrida a little bit as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Foucault definitely has his analysis of horizontal, the, the horizontal circulation of power. Um, and as well, his critique of uh, hierarchical structures, or especially in discipline and punish, I find it's a very uh, um, a good anarchist critique of the prison system in, uh, in that respect, or how the, the prison system, the modern prison system, developed. Um, now, wh what I tend to do in the manifesto, I tend to describe sort of Western capitalist societies as soft totalitarian states. And what I mean by that, it's both it's sort of, we're kind of living over an umbrella of soft total, uh, software totalitarianism where our information uh, every time we go online is being gathered and 
scooped up into these giant warehouses of da data banks, et cetera. And so that, that's one aspect that I, I would say we're living in a soft totalitarian state. And uh, the other aspect is that there's, there's leeway to, to the structures of capitalism in the sense that it does, it can, it's able to uh, shift and to adjust itself to uh, leftist critiques uh, in that respect. It's able to, it's pliable. So it's like we're living in a bubble, in an information bubble, where all of our information is being sucked up through these totalitarian networks. And at the same time, we can push against it. We have certain liberties, but these liberties are always conditioned that we function according to the logic of capitalism. So, uh, so we work according to the dictates of capitalism. We consume according to the, uh, the dictates of capitalism, and we distribute knowledge and information according to the dictates of capitalism. So th that's where the totalitarianism comes in. We can't, we can't step out of the economy and say we, we'd like to live according to different principles or a different economic formation. We are forced coerced both softly, mentally, and rigidly to conform to this underlying logic across the board of Western societies, hence the term so soft totalitarian states. Yeah. And maybe could you give us a, an example of about how, how you see the logic of capital functioning? Uh, it seems to be the logic of capitalism seems to be the maximization of profit and by profit can also be power uh, by any means necessary at the lowest financial cost as soon as possible. So this seems to be the driving force of the system that it, it tries to accumulate as much wealth, as much power, as much money, as much private property in a, the smallest possible centers as soon as possible and by any means necessary and preferably at the lowest financial cost. While, okay, while in contrast to this, it will, it, it will pacify the, the general population to the minimum levels, which essentially it's dictated by uh, the power struggles in our everyday lives. So the more we kick up a fuss, the more we get from the system. The, the less we kick up a fuss, the more the system erodes services, erodes uh, uh, um, our wealth, our, 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 our working hours. So we're constantly, the more it indebts us to the system. If, we do not, if we're not all constantly willing to engage and struggle. Uh, so that's what I would say the logic of capitalism is. <laughs> So I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot in, in terms of how Twitter operates, because I do see it as sort of this microcosm for, I guess, my understanding of the logic of, of capital in, in a sense, in that the, you know, accounts with larger followings can garner a lot more engagement or attention simply by the fact of having capital in the sense of followers, right? Right, right. And that that um, messes that and that kind of so we're always sort of directed to this idea of the market delivering what people want. And it doesn't quite work that way because 
there's a stickiness, I think, to, to capital, right? It, 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 the more you have, the easier it is to accumulate and vice versa, the least capital, the less capital you have, the more difficult it is. And that's sort of the, really the breakdown in this sort of, I guess, the, uh, the utopian idealism in, in the market itself. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's this whole notion that money begets money kind of thing. Capital begets capital. What is it? Um, compound, the old saying, like the most powerful force in the universe is compounding interest or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, in, I'm in agreement. For absolutely. Um, it, it, there's also like the, the system is rigged in the sense that the algorithms more or less uh, operating in the digital spheres seem to favor certain types of uh, of scenarios. You might say that they're the iron bars uh, protecting like that, uh, the, this capitalist milieu where the, um, I, I tend to call it like the bourgeois status quo, sort of these mild, moderate, reformist uh, liberals who, who are not willing to really engage uh, fundamentally with the system essentially with uh, the systemic flaws of the system. And they kind of exist in this like, uh, this centralized, um, I, I call it a dictatorship of the middle or the dictatorship of the centrists where, and this is where capital, capitalism develops these algorithms which are more or less bars. And Twitter does this. I mean, it'll, it'll censor certain tweets or whatever. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but in, in general, in, in the general sense, it's protect these indoctrinated sort of centrist uh, uh, masses, a mass of centrists who kind of buttress the, the whole, hold up the whole apparatus with a, a capitalist aristocracy at the top. Um, that's sort of what, this is sort of an outline I put forward in the manifesto where you have the kind of like these micro-fascist oligarchical networks caging or gently enclosing uh, um, sort of a herd of centrists that, that they're tough to get to after that from anyone who really wants to make fundamental changes to the system, to essentially egalitarian changes to the system. Yeah. And so your, the, work, the manifesto is primarily discussing political economy rather than, um, I guess, a more so praxis-oriented manifesto, correct? Uh, the, well, the first four sections are about the analysis of the system. Uh, sorry, the first three sections more or less lay out an analysis of the system, this sort of notion of the, the soft totalitarian state. Uh, uh, or bourgeois capitalist totalitarianism, where capitalism is now the only game in town kind of thing. You know, I kind of, um, I, I like this idea. I had referred to this sort of thing as the uh, digital panopticon. I, absolutely, absolutely. But that digital panopticon is underlaid in, in everyday life, in our, in materially, in everyday life. Uh, and it, 
more or less, I, I think it, it's an excellent term, but I, I, would, I would ground it as well in material terms. There are institutions and the way the police function, the way uh, uh, politics functions on the ground is very much this whole notion that we are governed by, we, we, are, we are overlaid by this digital panopticon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sort of your vision is, in terms of like how to apply this, is that maybe the structures of like capitalism is perhaps too, I guess, monolithic at this point for there, it sort of has to erode on its own. And then hopefully these more anarchist structures can take, take over in the fallout from the collapse of, of capitalism. Yeah. It's not, I would say it's not as monolith, it's not monolithic in the sense of, let's say, Stalinist Russia was, where you had this giant bureaucracy kind of crushing everyone else down. It's monolithic in the sense that the central operating code, the logic of capitalism is, is, is everywhere, but it's, it's everywhere in different forms. So it's it, the inside the nucleus is this whole notion of the maximization of profit by any means necessary at the expense of the general population. But the way that comes across in Western societies is multivaried. So, for example, uh, in the digital digital sphere, you have this notion of like rent, sort of the, the application of rent sucking out uh, profits like Netflix, for example, sucking out profits every month. Uh, and at the same time, it's collecting information. While you have, you still have like sort of these, these industrial factories still operating in the old model kind of thing. So where, which is sucking surplus value through longer, or longer working hours. So I would say this is where you see capitalism as being a flexible sort of system but at the same time always functioning according to the same logic yeah so that's what i would say how much I think I, it, ties, it ties in with what you're saying how much of an interest do you have in um in psychoanalysis do you have an interest at all because i think i've been kind of i've been on this lacanian kick for several months now and uh, i was just thinking about how it's, I find it very interesting for one, but I think it's in, in a really interesting way to look at how capital, how that logic of capital operates on our subconscious. Uh, I, I am familiar with Lacan's work uh, and psychoanalysis and I would say Deleuze and Guattari's perspective. So I am, I, I, I'm familiar with it. If you wanted to go into, delve into that a little bit, I think I can follow. Yeah, because I'm, I'm kind of curious. It, so in looking at Foucault's model for how power is operating and that's sort of being the, the baseline for, for everything is this sort of distributed power or diffuse power all operating at different levels and there's different intensities, I think. Like, um, I think it is sort of like gravity, right? You have certain planets like Jupiter's gravity is much stronger than Earth's, but they're all, everything's sort of pulling on one another within this kind of, um, I would say maybe a syncretic system. And then contrasting that with, I guess the psychoanalytic version is that 
I don't know, there's, when you're dealing with the unconscious, there's less of a, like it's sort of exposing that not all of these things are logic, logic-based, like there's a libidinal aspect to the logic of capitalism, and that's part of how it's so successful at being able to reproduce itself. Uh, I, I, yes, I, for sure. <laughs> it seems to it seems to feed into this notion, like I would say, uh, satisfy to a certain extent this whole notion of. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to put it a bit in, in Nietzschean terms, the will to power kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you buy. You, okay, you buy a car, let's say, for status, and at the uh, for for status, you buy a brand name car for status. Okay, that has a certain notion of like projecting power on everyone else by the simple fact that the brand has been manufactured by the company through incessant propaganda, which creates kind of this aura around the object that you, you seem to find or an individual might find satisfaction in. Uh, and you, you have the, the, Marx called it the fetishization of objects, uh, the fetishization of commodities. And you have, and this kind of touches on this libidinal aspect of what you're talking about, where through fetish, the fetishization of objects, people identify themselves with capitalist objects that are essentially myths or, uh, um, yeah, essentially myths or an aura that's surrounding an object, an aura that, that essentially would evaporate if we did away with capitalism. So a lot of people are tied to capitalists, to capitalism because uh, the aura of objects would essentially disappear under a different set of circumstances, under under a different set of socioeconomic conditions, uh, and that that's an, a libidinal connection there, because there's no rational basis for for one object, uh, I don't know, one type of soap over another having these magical properties, kind of thing. <laughs> And that actually, that's a good segue too, because I think that goes to, I know that we kind of have discussed in private about the sort of now that we're in this kind of, I guess, postmodern or late capital, late uh, stage capitalism, that there's that disconnection between like use value and sort of the, like Marx's original formulation of that. And now with something like, um, a car that you're describing like a, a Mercedes or a, a Rolls Royce or something like that's sort of dis, disengaged from from use value and now it's all about the symbolic that symbolic fetishistic aspect right it's it, this is where capitalism becomes mental domination where it creates these structures these arbitrary structures because when you get down to it capitalism is simply an organizing principle by which to live by and it has no foundation other than force and influence. It, that's all it wants to do is force its, its logic of operation on everything while eliminating all alternatives. And this is where it's very much a despotic sort of logic and a system in the sense that it has to be the only game in town. And it cannot tolerate 
any alternatives. And the only way to describe something like that is totalitarianism. It wants to be total at every level of human existence. And um, now, uh, just to get back to what we're saying, uh, the objects that it, it turns out have, have these these auras about them, these images that are that are existing, absent, or separated from the uh, the actual material object. Um, but I mean, that's that's where the left needs to engage its critique. You need to realize that uh, capitalism has no moorings other than force and influence at the in the last at the last line of defense right it, it's all about uh might equals right kind of idea are you familiar with um the brand supreme at all the grand supreme it's a, no there's a br there's a brand it's a kind of start i think it was a skate company at one time but the brand is supreme and oh, okay so what they, I'm not familiar. What they do, I'll describe it for you, is they will, this has become really popular now. And this, I think, goes to this weird decoupling for, of like the commodity from, from use value and kind of that more primitive idea of the commodity is they will take something like a brick and they'll just, they just by virtue of putting their logo on a brick, then that can command, like it draws people line up around the block they camp out for these sort of releases of these objects. And it's all these very like uh, banal objects, sometimes like a canoe or what have you, but just by virtue of having the Supreme logo on it, then it creates demand. It creates like there's a desire attached to it. And it very much goes to that sort of hierarchical element of like, oh, I will buy, I will purchase this thing, this commodity, and it will raise my status within the hierarchy. I, yes, I, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is where we're kind of at now. This is capitalism to the nth degree now. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it shows that it's not the object per se, it's the, the ideas or the values created, which are essential. They are manufactured by, uh, through indoctrination and tons of advertisement. Uh, these mental, more or less, these mental uh, um, constructs that are applied to objects, regardless of the object. And I think that's an ex excellent example of what you're showing there. I, I'm thinking of a more funnier, uh, fun, uh, kind of a funny object that kind of functioned along the same way. Was uh, I think it was in the late 70s, the whole notion of the pet rock. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Where you had like these polished rocks who the guy made a million dollars simply by the, the way he pitched the damn thing that people had to have the rock and the little booklet of how to take care of the rock and et cetera, all the little accessories. But it, it's kind of hinting, hinting to that, that it's really uh, a lot of what capitalism is doing. It's it's it's. The whole notion of Disney, imagineering uh, society. Uh, so it's we live, and I would say these days, we live more under constant sort of per, uh, persistent and uh, a, a total sort of propaganda uh, 
in the sense, not of like the old notion of propaganda, but com consumerist propaganda. We're constantly being pumped uh, with, uh, we're living in an environment of brands and constant indoctrination. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the strength of where capitalism lies. Uh, it tries to make us acquiesce to its, its wants, needs, and desires. Uh, its wants, needs, and desires become our own kind of thing. Right. And I, I think that very much so, like I said, there's, I think a lot of this really is, is driven by this libidinal aspect to, to desire and demand and the commodity fetish. Like all of that are sort of is wrapped up in one another and, you know, in, in capitalism's ability to always be creating new, new desires for us. And I think especially the way that this proliferates whenever you're decoupling that from a physical commodity and you're going digital, right? So yeah, it's yeah. almost as if whenever you're stepping into the digital space, that almost allows the possibilities for capitalism to create new desires ad infinitum to where there's no end to the amount of new desires rather than like, right, we have a certain amount of limited space within a, a grocery store or any kind of retail space, right? So you can only offer so many projects. So there's kind of that limit in, in place. But whenever you're moving digital, you're going beyond that. And so then capitalism can sort of almost perpetually um, reproduce itself by because it has the ability to just manufacture new and new wants over and over again. And then we can, then we're sort of trapped in that virtual space. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, where I find it's the kicker, it's that you have, it, it is a filter at the same time, only the ideas that, that reflect it's all uh, the system's own wants, needs, and desires are allowed to penetrate and disseminate across the system. Um, it's media landscape, it's various profits environments like bookstores or movie theaters, etc. Um, yeah, because we get we uh, there is a lot of repression going on too within the system to only allow certain creative developments. Uh, and this is one, this is something I touch upon the manifesto is that. People are inherently creative and will try and produce various things. Uh, we're, we're sort of different types of beings and we produce different things that under capitalism are not as valid are not valued because the system only wants very narrow, confining sort of creative manifestations. So as an individual, you either fit into these this sort of limited standards of what the system wants, or you're excluded, you're marginalized, you're forced to live on the fringes of the system, constantly watching in. Um, and that, again, this is something, I mean, this is something that leads back into authoritarian principles at the foundation of it all. Um, as multiple, as you can produce uh, the logic of capitalism, in an infinite multiplicity of ways, but you constantly have to produce the logic of capitalism. And that's where the totalitarianism comes in, in this multiplicity. Uh, and, and this is something I outline in the manifesto, yeah. 
Um, I, I, are you getting what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally tracking with you. Um, also on that same level. So there's another brand and I kind of use this as inspiration for the, the artwork related to the podcast is there's a brand called off white. And what, what this brand does is they will take an object like a wallet and they will simply in block like Helvetica, you know, sans serif font, they will simply place like wallet in quotation marks on the object. And then that imbues it with, you know what I mean? Then this becomes, you know, the value, it's a very expensive item too. Like, they, you know, they charge hundreds of dollars for these very simple things that are even kind of cutting through like this ironic logic of capitalism. And it's like throwing it in your face. Like this is, we understand, we both know, like we both understand that this is a commodity, but that is sort of that joke or that irony is what creates the demand or the desire for the object too. It's, it's really interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is, I think you're touching upon something very important in the era, the era we're living in, in the sense that, value, see, Marxists had this notion that value uh, was always socially necessary labor time. So that the amount of labor time that goes into a commodity uh, in some form reflects its price. Now, in a postmodern age or post-industrial age, uh, all that is thrown out the window in the sense that, and I, uh, this is something I've sort of gotten into the analysis, it's that value prices and wages are all fundamentally constructed, artificially constructed, arbitrarily by the sort of ruling power blocks through through force and influence, you can impose a value and a price and a wage for whatever particular commodity or profession on the general population. And I think that's what you're hinting at with uh, the, the, the brick having the, the corporate logo or this other example you're mentioning, that through simply having the gravitational force or power based on size, you can actually uh, uh, d uh, determine arbitrarily what something, the price of something, what its value is in the public eye. And you can do this with professions and wages. Um, I, I, I always link, I always talk about um, the entertainment industry, sports oh, stars. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great yeah, example. Yeah. Sports stars and movie stars essentially uh, uh, produce, uh, do not produce per se an object, do not labor uh, to the extent that regular, peop uh, regular, pe regular people do and nevertheless can command such a high wage or such a high salary in the market. And it really comes down to the networks, that the, the power networks they belong to. Like yeah, exactly. just this just the sheer gravitational force of let's say like the NFL to bend like socio uh, to bend our uh, the general population uh, sorry to bend reality to their will just by the sheer size and like the um, the hierarchical structures that they have um, it, it, and you know, when you think about it the product that they produce is simply entertainment 
and really is not as valuable, let's say, as a surgeon or a, a multiplicity of other professions. But because uh, um, they, they exert such force and influence, they kind of bend reality, bend value and prices according to their own standards. Um, and that's the, I would say that that's, I, I, when I write this, I'm moving beyond a Marxist analysis where I'm saying, no, it has nothing to do with socially necessary labor time anymore. It's not how, how much you work that determines your value or the value of a product. It's what the network or um, uh, the power block that this product exists within that determines value. It's essentially it's force and influence at the end of the day. And that is a total, a totally a post-industrial sort of thing. I mean, a, a CEO whose wages, com in comparison to 50 years ago, I think uh, the, uh, it's gone up about 600%, something like that. That is simply indicative of the power that they're in the force that they're able to exert on our uh, on socioeconomic existence in general, than actually the labor time that they're spending uh, in their everyday endeavors. Um, I mean, and th this leads back to, to why there's inequality is starting to get bigger and bigger is because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's because the, um, there, this other uh, corporate America, et cetera, is exerting so much force and influence over everyday life itself. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you think about it in, in terms of the marketplace, right, the, like the products are already being manufactured, but the logic, you know what I mean? Like the people that do believe in how markets are supposed to function in terms of meeting meeting needs and so forth, like may, maybe it's some like primitive stage, but this is kind of, I think, a good material analysis, even though it's not specifically Marxist about how, like by virtue of existing already, like these markets can determine there is that totalitarian aspect of like, yeah, you can choose amongst these products that we have determined <laughs> you should have the choice of, right? Like it's kind of, there's kind of a circular logic there too. And also in terms of like your examples about entertainers, whether it be something like the NFL as well, I think that also plays a role because you have a pre-existing um, cultural product of the NFL right that exists already and so then you're kind of like you learn that that product has value but do, does that kind of make do you see what I'm saying yeah yeah, yeah. it's it, you're 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 touching on the the important aspect that it, the way the NFL has been able to infiltrate itself through whatever means they utilize it's like you said that net that already kind of pre-existing network allows it to maintain and build its power yeah yeah and at the expense of uh, you know other things um that have just as much value to sustaining this system like um uh you know uh, a housework or housework for example or just um trying to think of something uh raising a child for example raising a child which is essential to the to the re reproductive capacity of of the system itself 
is is has no value while you know catching a football really is considered is considered valuable i mean it's completely arbitrary at that point and it's so what so this is the question i asked i said well if that if it's completely arbitrary and when you think about it it's utility is it so what's sustaining the value of one and pushing down the value of the other it has to be at the end of the day force and influence force of uh, being able to overpower anything else and marginalize it completely yeah and i think for me the more and more i'm looking into it as i think that like i said there's that libido there's a the, the psychoanalytic aspect to it as well as it's not quite so clear as as just power alone but there's like there's a weird trick that capitalism is operating on at the level of the unconscious with desires well, and, yeah. and sort of taking that, taking advantage of that element of, of the sort of unconscious through these commodities. Well, yeah, like what I mean by force, it's both mental force, like we're being imposed upon certain, with certain ideas, like an ideology is being impressed on us through uh, various media uh, outlets. Um, so they're constructing their value through through uh on the intellectual level on the mental level but they're also doing it uh um, on the material level the way a city's organized the way uh every city must have a litany of of uh football stadiums okay to keep people you know entertained and there's a whole it's being reflected as well this ideology which is producing uh um, these arbitrary values and prices, it's being reproduced as well materially. It's been backed up materially as well. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I think you see that, um, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, and I think I've been thinking about this a lot because I've started a new job and I'm sitting in traffic quite a bit in the afternoons. And I'm just thinking as I sit in traffic, it's stop and go traffic. I'm like, this is the material application of the logic of capital in terms of this is the transportation system that derives, allows um, capital to extract the most profit. Is this very, you know what I mean? Because think about how, um, thinking about sitting in traffic and kind of think about all the raw materials that are sort of sitting there and this sort of basically what is a parking lot and how inefficient that is from a perspective. But that inefficiency in itself is also what allows all that profit to be created or extracted or both i guess <laughs> well yeah yeah absolutely i mean um it, it, it i mean when you're in traffic and you have let's say a, a really shitty car okay you really feel the traffic so you're like, geez, I gotta work harder and get a better car where I can have a stereo system and you know be more insulated. So as I'm waiting there an hour in traffic, I can entertain myself and um, be more comfortable. I mean, so in a way, it kind of ties in to this notion of we're constantly, yeah, we're kind of being pressured. Okay, so now you're we've got you stuck in traffic. We've designed the system. Now, how are you going to do to get out of it? Here are the options you have. You can get a better job and a better car or 
move closer to work, which you'll have to spend. And it gets you moving in capitalist ways on, on, on a long enough timeline. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I think about that every, every time I'm interested. <laughs> it's so terrible. <laughs> Just like the, and the inefficiency of everyone having their own individual car in terms of like their amounts of resources we've had to extract to create all of these cars and then we just like are going to have to keep on and keep on reproducing more and more because of the sort of planned obsolescence elements of them too well it just the i could just think of it like the the whole notion of the dictatorship of the car okay (laughs) (laughs) i mean i mean um uh the automobile is like this excellent example of market individualism. You're like, it's radical individualism. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're stuck in your own car. I mean, you're not conversing really with anyone and uh, you're being pounded by uh, advertisement on the radio or whatever. Um, but yeah, it has this notion of the, the logic of capitalism like built into it to make you into an individual who will, who is striving towards uh, expressing to the full, his full extent, uh, uh, his own capitalist, I don't know, logic of that, in that respect. <laughs> what other um, elements, of, we talked about just a couple, what other elements of the manifesto do you think are kind of important or do you feel like expounding on? Um, well, we touch upon value, price, and wage, how uh, th- this is, is coming out of an anarchist critique and a postmodern critique, uh, and at the same time, it's playing against the, the, the Marxist aspect. Uh, I talk about micro-revolutions, which might be good as, um, as an aspect of, uh, of resisting this whole system. Yeah, let's yeah, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, because we've been sort of talking about the totalitarianism of the system. Let's talk, yeah. So micro-revolutions are more or less uh, these micro-revolts that, that happen uh, across the, mi- uh, the micro-fronts of our lives against capitalism. So it can be something like absenteeism, taking a day off. Uh, it can be something like... Um, you know, sm- small, insignificant sort of things like property destruction, um, little things, um, which are all sort of like uh, cries of resistance and liberty against the system. But uh, it's like the small sparks that can lead to fundamental transformation, socioeconomic transformation. So I, I this one of the the tactics or the strategies that I outline in the manifesto is this notion of micro revolutions where number one, we constantly live uh, on a daily basis in, in the midst and immersed in power struggles against the system. And so the choices we make do matter. Um, for, for example, um, I don't know, walking to work if you live close to work instead of taking your car uh, is, a, in a way, the system is not making money off you during that time period. So they, these are little resistances that we do, and they can develop, develop into a mentality of, or a mentality of resistance towards the system. And it, it can snowball into 
uh, these little micro revolutions across our everyday lives can develop into possibly a macro revolution over time into a, a, a total kind of a universal general strike or revolution that can might might uh, uh, overthrow the system. Um, so I, I, the insurrectionary anarchists had had tied into this. They had this notion that we, we constantly live in in this notion of power struggle. Uh, we we shouldn't be limited to to what constitutes bourgeois law, kind of thing like that. Bourgeois capitalist law. There. It's about constantly being able to resist the system. Um, so yeah, yeah, I would say that what we do on a daily basis does matter. It it can develop, it can snowball into uh, uh, the system more or less collapsing. But how do you separate that from sort of the the kind of liberal idea of? Because that almost feels like in a sense, voting, voting with your dollar or like, yeah, re recycle or something like that. Is there, do you feel like what's, what's the distinction there? Um, so I think it's easy it, to fall into that trap. And I think that too can. is, that's the critique from non-anarchists, the sort of non-anarchist perspective yeah, is like, yeah. if you're this um, sort of isolated individual, if you're sort of atomized, then without sort of a collective action, then there's really like, what's the, you're not really affecting change because of the simply the, the I guess the signal power that you have versus the signal power that the capital has via the networks. Right. Well, one of the fundamental difference between hardline totalitarian states and the softline totalitarian states that that the West is like is that there is leeway. So yeah, the system can reincorporate recycling or um urban gardening or whatever into back into the system like making uh, voting with uh with your dollar kind of thing it can reincorporate that but at the same time this sort of thinking can develop to a point where the system cannot go on um for example doing uh illegal acts of you know moderately illegal acts <laughs> and can can um, <laughs> at a certain point the system cannot bend anymore, and, and that's when you see police repression coming out. Uh, and essentially, it, like I said, small little insignificant changes, um, like a podcast here, can develop into something that can uh, overturn the whole system, um, and that's where the like. There has to be a. Uh, I, t I tend to de uh, to delineate between the system can accommodate reform, but it cannot co uh, accommodate revolution, more revolutionary change, radical social change. Uh, and that, at a certain point, the individual has to make that choice. Like, there's so much liberal re liberal reforms can do when there's so a fundamental or fatal flaw within the system itself. Uh, the structural system itself. Um, and that's where, yeah, micro-revolutions as a term can start, can start 
to war, it can start within the confines of reform. But at a certain point, there's a choice that has to be made where it becomes uh, a revolutionary moment kind of thing. And that's the point where fundamental structural changes can happen. Yeah. Let so me... it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, uh, there is kind of a wobble to it in that sense, but yeah. Let me pose this example to you from my kind of personal life is that I, uh, so I kind of enjoy fashion. This is like my most bourgeois affectation. And one element of that that I kind of enjoy is I, I bought this skirt that I really enjoy wearing because it is sort of acting on that level of, I guess, coming up into conflict with the sort of typical image of masculinity. And I think maybe that sort of, in a way, sort of fits into that, I think, idea of a, of a micro-revolution. Because I present as sort of a pretty, I think, pretty standard sort of masculine look, like if you saw me on the street, you know what I mean? Um, so I really like to enjoy playing with that. Do, do you think that example, in a way, sort of fits in? Although at the same time, I feel like by trying to revolt against that idea of traditional masculinity through the consumption of a commodity is how capitalism can sort of render that powerless in a way too? Uh, well, the fact that you're, you're, you're noticing the, the contradiction, okay? I, I, I classify that as a micro-revolutionary moment that can develop into some, uh, an insurrection or whatnot because you are starting to critique the system. And it's very small. We start within, like even Marx himself said that a revolutionary change would be sparked within the capitalist system itself. So it, the small changes can snowball into large significant changes. Um, and and uh, essentially for a structural anarchist, it's that the small structural changes at the fundamental level, although they may not, they may be innocuous, tend to develop a structure of feeling against the system. And this is the sort of the water that's watering the seeds of revolution, is this uh, uh, a structure, a, struct a structural feeling that more or less goes unsaid among, among radicals that uh, serves as a context towards more, more revolutionary actions. Um, so uh, we should never uh, underestimate uh, the power of small changes, but small changes we have to understand do exist within the system and a lot of them can be co-opted. But once in a while, one of them will break out and uh, really uh, cause trouble toward, for the system itself. And that's sort of what we're, uh, what we're what, what the left should be aiming at is that try, constantly always trying to push the boundaries of, uh, uh, of what is acceptable. Yeah, challenging the bourgeois status quo, the dictatorship of the of the market of desire. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what do you think? I've I've sort of had this formulation or this idea of that I think we really need 
a new situationist international and maybe not i mean maybe taking just take a lot of inspiration from the original si <laughs> and sort of update that and repurpose that and i think that kind of energy is something that's missing from from the left is i think one weakness on the left is that like i said capitalism is operating on this libidinal side too and i think maybe communists or anarchists need to tap into that same libidinal aspect to to create a, a more dynamic or to create a sort of insurrectionary or revolutionary model uh, are you talking about like or rupture. How the, yeah how the situation has functioned like um their whole artistic movement yeah sort of the uh, the yeah. graffiti the propaganda kind of like that like there's a certain um i think yeah, there's an avant-garde element to it. There's an artistic side. There's a spontaneity of energy and creativity that I think that's that's the libidinal aspect that I see missing from the left right now that I would like to see um, addressed or like. Okay. You know I mean, other okay. than this very like, because I feel like you get this very austere aspect of socialism where it's it's drab and it's there's uniformity right and even though that's not necessarily the case but that's like the popular imagination is oh if if we are in socialism or communism or anarchism then there won't like this my desire is mitigated right right uh yeah well like there's an there's like this ascetic lifestyle that you have to live that's based on morality or like this kind of pious lifestyle that I think is maybe what the biggest challenge in overcoming capitalism ultimately is, is it says that your desire, like it, it justifies your desires and it like plays to that aspect of it, that never ending kind of that sort of Lacanian lack. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it's in comparison to communism. Yeah, it, it's been, it's been able to play to that um well it but it does this in a like a bourgeois capitalist context so it says like um uh, any uh, well here's an anarchist principle anything goes okay in an anarchist society anything goes um to the point where you start encroaching on another person's freedom kind of thing uh while capitalism, and this is where it, capitalism is, is pretty cunning, it says, okay, anything goes to the limit of your purchasing power. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we definitely see this with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, so an anarchist society, or to, to tie into that, would have to, and th this, is why, this is why I think I'm more of an anarchist than uh, the whole notion of, uh, of an authoritarian sort of communism. Communism, the Leninist style uh, and Stalinist style and the Bolsheviks sort of had this notion of the everything will be, will filter through the central committee. Um, and, it, and this you could see over the 80 years had detrimental effect because it was impeding people's creative creativity to develop themselves and to develop alternatives and new ways of life and be inclusive. So it became a very closed, uh, domineering society, um, which ultimately ended in, ended in its collapse. But capitalism, in a similar fashion, 
functions according to a central committee or a very small elite who say, yeah, you can be as creative as you want within the confines, the narrow confines of the capitalist system. And you know that's what a lot of uh, a lot of people on the left are are so angry about is because i can't i can't express myself or do creative things at, to my maximum because i'm constantly having to worry about the bills the mortgage my debt my student debt etc um so in the long run i uh, capitalism will essentially shoot it uh, will essentially collapse because of this because it is it is to, to accumulate more and more profit uh, at one end of the spectrum in comparison to the other end requires it to be more and more narrow in its demands. So it's, throughout the 1930s, it's all the way up to the present, there's uh, things, the playing field of creativity in, within the capitalist system is becoming narrower and narrower and becoming more streamlined. Uh, and ultimately, yeah, I would say if the struggle is there, if the struggle uh, is there on the left, there there are there uh, windows of opportunity will open up for radical revolutionary change, um, because it, it seems that capitalism is headed towards the same sort of downfall as happened in, in authoritarian communist uh, societies. Yeah, I, I definitely agree in the sense that, and we mentioned algorithms briefly previously, but I think that is where, as I think that's the progression where capitalism is going, and eventually these algorithms will become the new, like, I guess that will really be the application of, <laughs> of this totalitarian capitalism. Right. In a very, right. so, like, that soft approach, I think, that has to, by necessity become harder and harder it does as as those algorithms begin to take you know, you know begin to apply to more areas of life than just our netflix or you know our facebook feed as Absolutely. we move as that continues to progress and, and evolve then those structures are going to get a lot more stilted and it's going to perhaps bring about its own demise uh, exactly. I mean, you're kind of seeing the the system fraying in certain places these days. I mean, across the globe, from Hong Kong to uh, uh, Chile to uh, the French Yellow Vest movements, uh, a ca capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, which was always sort of this this economic theory that pushed towards totalitarianism, having a totalitarian capitalist state with a, a capitalist aristocracy running the show at the top was always the end game of that. And we're sort of like living now in the age since 2007, 2008, that that, that, that is on the wane, or we're living in the twilight of neoliberal capitalism. So it's either gonna turn into a full-blown totalitarian, sort of like the China model, or it's gonna possibly uh, start breaking up. So like you might see something like Brexit, the, the breaking up of the European Union as being, uh, offering opportunities for a real socialist, anarchist, communist alternative to come to the fore. Um, because, uh, uh, 
as, as a system more or less wants to accumulate to uh, create a pyramid, a wealth pyramid, where again, the richer get richer at the top and the poor get poorer at the bottom, it requires it to become more and more rigid. And when, as it becomes more and more rigid, more and more people are thrown out or fall through the cracks of the system, and which inevitably leads to, to a revolutionary moment. Now it can fall, and hopefully it won't. It, it's a whole notion that it can be socialism or barbarism, sort of, uh, and the alt-right wants it to fall into this, this barbarous sort of fascist sort of society, very authoritarian. Because, um, while the left, being more plural, might be able to accommodate and create an anarchist alternative, a pluralized society. Economically, I mean, not politically like we have right now. I, I always say that, uh, or I might spin on that now, is that anarcho-communism, it's either anarcho-communism or, or barbarism. That's my update to that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. It's that choice. I, like I said, I kind of mentioned earlier that I kind of felt like maybe the direction of the manifesto was geared towards like this era at like sort of this opportunity as capitalism creates its own demise that there will be a, a space for the for that anarcho-communist model to, to proliferate. Uh, yes. Uh, one of the strengths of anarcho-communism, because um, I see uh, structural anarchism as being a form of anarcho-communism, is this, this whole notion of a decentralized, horizontalized society uh, where people can participate more. But uh, like all anarchists' uh, uh, theory, uh, it requires us to do away with the bourgeois state the point where uh, it's a federation of municipalities, cooperatives, and autonomous collectives. That's, that's what structural anarchism is driving at, that through economic egalitarianism and plurality, uh, you can have a more uh, satisfying society for the greatest number, that people will be able to more or less express themselves and not have to be chained to the logic of capitalism, essentially the logic of survival, uh, economic survival within the system. I mean, that's, that's the goal. And I think uh, a decentralized, uh, decentralized economic planning by little, uh, a network of municipalities, cooperatives, uh, and autonomous collectives or communes, people can better organize their everyday lives and be, it'll be a, a more efficient and more satisfying to the wants, needs, and desires of people on a general scale. So you won't have people whose desires and needs are not met and those whose, whose needs and desires are met in super abundance, which is, um, which is fundamentally unfair at the at the base of it, and as well, uh, uh, in uh, encoded in the in the capitalist system itself. 
uh, while a, f a federation of uh, autonomous collectives, municipalities, and cooperatives might uh, would encourage uh, participation and uh, a more an open participatory democracy in, on a whole. Yeah. Are there any other elements of the manifesto that um, we haven't we discussed could, that you're, you find interesting or be a good uh, line of flight? Uh, oh, okay. Um, well, I talk um, in chapter four. Well, okay. No, let's, let's back up. Uh, so I, I would say that the, the manifesto outlines that we do live in a post-industrial, post-modern society, but it is a bourgeois post-industrialism postmodern society, which means that at the base of it, we're, we're still dealing with uh, one, uh, one meta-narrative, which is preventing the full blossoming of postmodernism, which would be an anarchist society. Okay, so I, I say that because we, we still have this one meta-narrative, this one enlightenment sort of uh, uh, um, uh, meta-narrative uh, hanging around, dictating everything uh we still haven't seen the full the, the full possibilities of what a postmodern society is because capitalism is still uh uh the governing principle uh and meta narrative sort of uh informing everything that happens throughout the system so uh structural anarchism is about pointing this out and saying that once this goes uh and you have the, the postmodernists always talked about like the, a resurgence of micro narratives. So a, 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 a litany of small narratives governing everyday lives and sort of circulating everywhere. And it would be more, it would maximize freedom, equality, and plurality and heterogeneity. This is sort of the postmodern notion, but you can't have that with in a, a bourgeois capitalist society because you have a bourgeois capitalist narrative dominant is what would a society look like if we push postmodernism to its limit postmodern theory to its limit what would a a, 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 a real postmodern society look like that it can accommodate all sorts of micro narratives and it really comes down to only uh, specifically what it would look like an anarchist uh, federation of municipalities and cooperatives and autonomous, autonomous collectives where you have all these micro narratives who have now been empowered both economically and politically uh, uh, finally contributing to uh, the, the self-management of, of society in general. Um, so the structural anarchism is about pushing postmodernism to its limits. So it, it, it breaks through its bourgeois capitalist shell and, or prison, and in fact is able to realize itself to, uh, uh, to fully come to, to pass. And if it, when it does fully come to pass, uh, it would look like more or less an anarchist society or structural anarchist society. Um, so that's one point that's made in the manifesto. Another one is, uh, what are the tendencies, uh, which is section four, what are the tendencies 
that will lead to the end of bourgeois state capitalism. Uh, and I outline, I believe, I outline two, uh, sorry, four, four. Uh, one, of them, one of them is universal nihilism in the sense that the, the capitalist system, um, due to the fact that it's, it's become highly efficient and highly uh, uh, functional in propagating um, uh, nihilist principles, which I mean like meaninglessness, uh, superficiality, vapid, vapid uh, commodities and vapid imagery and vapid uh, um, uh, ideologies which circulate through its its circuitry um, it's creating more or less it's it's creating a sort of this uh, universal nihilistic framework and this in the long run or some people call it alienation we're alienated from the system because we're not we're constantly living outside looking in um, this nihilism is fueling uh, sort of nihilistic sort of actions from you know uh, uh, mass murderers and uh, and all sorts of anti-social sort of behaviors but this is more or less cries of the fact that we're, we're so inundated with with uh, uh, universal nihilism, so this can lead to, or feed into uh, the collapse of the system. Another one is that, um, as as we were talking earlier, this whole notion that the accumulation of wealth, uh, power, profit, and private property at one pole, in comparison to another pole, which misery, mental and physical, and poverty is accumulating at the other pole, this is essentially ripping the system apart. Um, and over time, through the cutting of services, uh, et cetera, can only uh, fuel um, uh, uh, resistance towards the system. Um, so that's two main things. Uh, another one is the, the way the system always focuses itself on centrality, on on the center. Oh, we must accommodate. We must uh, cater to the the moderates, the reformists, the liberals, the centrists. This whole this whole uh, um, nucleus can only uh, uh, end in catastrophe, in my estimation. Um, Take, for example, climate change. Uh, so the data and information out there is that we're facing radical climate change, but we're responding to radical climate change with moderate reforms, which you can see that this doesn't work. It's this whole notion that voting, vote, okay, with the, the iceberg of climate change coming towards us, and vote, we're stuck voting for the center left or the center right, the center left, center right ad nauseum only means that we're, we're going to hit this iceberg dead in the center because we're only going a little bit left, a little bit right, back again, back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when something, dra the system is, seems to be incapable of accommodating when 
something drastic needs to be done. Um, and this is one of the things I would say that will definitely contribute to the system's uh, uh, inability to reproduce itself on a, on a long enough timeline, is that it's, a, it's incapable the way it's organized right now because it, it's excluding the majority of the population from any decision-making authority um, and sort of centralizing power in a select few that are stuck in it, that constantly are, are centrists, the dictatorship of the center again, can, it can variably mean that they, it will not be able to accommodate uh, a, a drastic climate change or what needs to actually be done uh, through that. Um, so, <laughs> so this whole notion of the, uh, the dictatorship of the center has the possibility of bringing down the system. You're just not getting people in, in the right positions. And this leads into the, the fourth is that um, it seems that to move up the capitalist hierarchy requires you to be more and more ideologically congruent with the capitalist ideology or the logic of capitalism. So this is excluding highly creative people, highly uh, um, inventive, innovative people from actually participating. Well, thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Marx never went into this. That uh, So what you have at the top, uh, and I mean, you can kind of see this with the American sort of what's going on uh, with the White House right now. You have sort of ideolo being ideologically congruent with uh, the governing ideology is your is your ticket to advancement. But on a long enough timeline, so it means that people who are in positions that require uh, a high level of intelligence you're filling these positions with people with average intelligence, but highly ideologically congruent, which means they, they're kind of uh, victims of their own ideology. Um, so now it, you, you take an, a, such an example and you multiply it. And as capitalism develops decade after decade, you have more and more people who uh, uh, the ticket to acceptance into the uh, upper echelons of the system requires you to be, uh, again, uh, uh, have this, be uh, embody the uh, capitalist ideology, which is usually the centrists and the moderately left or the moderate, moderately right people who are going up into positions that may, that may require people with a different perspective in order to find suitable solutions. Eventually, over time, this creates uh, a dissonance in the system, which can, uh, which can uh, um, uh, reverberate and cause ruptures and schisms uh, and fray the system uh, in general. And over time, this can actually lead to socioeconomic collapse, and that having the wrong people in, the right, uh, in, in wrong positions. Yeah, so... So that, those are the four things uh, of that that I would say are the tendencies that are leading capitalism down down towards uh, the end of capitalism. Um, and one, th uh, just to finish it, like uh, capitalism does have an expiration date, um, 
and it's I would say it's expiration date it's well past so <laughs> <laughs> I will agree there <laughs> so yeah yeah so um, that's basically what what the manifesto and, uh, outlines and it has uh, uh, it chapter th or section three discusses the military industrial complex and this is where I put forward the notion of the soft totalitarian state that the, uh, this whole notion uh, the military industrial complex is has gone uh, global and <laughs> global and wants to totally dominate so that everything is filtering into industrial capitalist industrialism and uh, reproducing the system on an ever-expanding scale uh, and military uh, uh, um, forms of organization very hierarchical vertical uh, where there's there's less and less uh, conversations going on between uh, people on the ground floor and people at the top uh, and, and on as you can see on an, on an long enough timeline uh, this can only cause uh, uh, and cause uh, de having uh, can cause devastating effects. Um, yeah, so th that's what the manifesto outlines, and it basically says, well, here's 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 a possibility that to avert when the system collapses, here's an idea that might work. And it introduces this whole notion. I mean, this whole notion of socio-economic guarantees. So, um, so uh, which is ba basically uh, um, economic egalitarianism. So, people, everyone has access to the means of means of life and means of education. Means, and essentially, it's. Um, it's to by having a socioeconomic guarantees for everyone, so a place to live, a uh, living wage, uh, access to the means of life, uh, health care, um, um, political involvement, the ability to um, to influence uh, policy, uh, investing people with decision making authority. Um, can better service a, a population on a whole than capitalism can. So, yeah, that's about what the <laughs> the book is about. Do you have any other questions? Uh, I guess not not so much that I can think of at the moment. Do you have any questions for me or any topics that outside uh, of outside of your work that? Oh, okay. Can you like um, to pose? Yeah. Um, well. I, I should mention I, I've published three books. I, I've, there's one called Insurrection slash uh, Postmodernism, which uh, deals with this whole notion of the the grand narrative and how we, for for postmodernism postmodernism to to fully blossom and it needs to become anarchistic and overthrow the last remaining grand narrative. Um, and I have another book called The Treaties on, on Nihilism, which discusses uh, uh, the, this notion of um, that uh, discusses the, the notion of uh, that there, there are no underlying truths, 
but that uh, the only system that can accommodate this is anarchism because anarchism is about plurality and heterogeneity of that respect. Um, uh, maybe I should give, uh, I'll give an example of a micro revolution from my personal life to finish off. Um, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm a working artist. So I, I, for eight years, I was making a living uh, d doing visual arts. And in Canada, the, the gallery system is pretty uh, lackluster and um, very, uh, very uh, streamlined. So what I used to do, uh, just to give you an example of what the system can't, can't co-op, um, so what I used to do, I, I basically started making these, these uh, uh, I would say, fake resumes to be able to get into galleries. <laughs> and, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I was doing it. I was doing it. So I was, I was getting a series, <laughs> of awesome. shows at, a series of shows over and over and over. And this went on for like a year, two years. And uh, <laughs> and. Yeah, yeah. So I was getting all the uh, these shows in various galleries, and uh, which were pretty reputable. And uh, um, so eventually, the the gig uh, the gig was up, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I you know, this is just me being be, being a bit of a prankster." <laughs> and, and so I, they were so offended that. Um, <laughs> so the, yeah, they were so offended that the. Um, uh, they basically marginalized marginalized me. Uh, they wrote, uh, you know, they wrote a, a huge article on it, like to try and like they they never saw that. Yeah, well, art is about experimenting and just kind of, you know, I wasn't stealing money from them. Right. It was, it's just about experimenting and using various techniques to get around. You know, it's like jumping the turnstile to get yeah. on, on a train. And uh, which is what they were, they said, they said, oh, you're just jumping the turnstile, <laughs> you know, you're, you know, you're using fakery. But I, uh, and I told him, I said, well, you know, art is kind of like, you, you're kind of doing uh, 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 entertainment or at the same time, you can use innovation to be, if in no place, you should be able to use innovation in art and using various techniques to, to get your work shown. Um, so yeah, anyways, they, they did not, the system could never regurgitate that. They couldn't <laughs> co-op that. And uh, so, the, so basically a whole band went out around. Okay. And I, I could say that that was a micro revolutionary moment. They could not accept the fact that I had beat them at their own game kind of thing. Yeah. And I did it. I did perfectly for fun. It wasn't. It wasn't to uh, scoop up money from them or anything like that. So it was just to to show that yeah, there are different ways to to get around the gallery system. <laughs> uh, because in Canada, it's a very like uh, it's a gallery system run through art departments, and they they kind of very much like structure what gets in it or out. So. Um, having so what, what I used to do is um, yeah I would develop I would basically work on the on the resumes to get it get it around the sensor so I could get into the gallery 
and I, I just happened to hit, I guess, and I, I was able to do it for like a year and a half <laughs> to, to, oh, <laughs> to basically upend the gallery system one after another. Um, but yeah, th this was one, I would say, uh, one of the, the times that I would say was an example of micro-revolution in my own personal life. Um, I was, uh, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> you should, you should write a book about that because that would be, I think that's super I, I interesting. Don't, I don't, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it, once the gig is up, you're kind of like left. I kind of knew that. I kind of knew that getting in was that once the gig was up, that would, it might be, people might get the joke or they wouldn't and, and would like turn, um, turn reactionary and that's kind of what happened because I Canadian art is very structured and uh it's kind of conservative and, and stuff like that so they weren't really getting the fact that you know uh, art is about playing with boundaries right it, that's that's the fundamental thing about it so and in a in a capitalist society where it's all about where you're shown that matters that um, net, that kind of network that you talked about earlier that's kind exactly. of this it's already this pre-existing material structure that right. controls it, what it controls what is considered or you know what's valued exactly. and, and that relationships arbitrarily arbitrarily set by virtue yeah. of the network Kind of like even we talked about my example with Twitter earlier or like with just capital in general, it's like it has that sticky element to it or it has that certain gravity where just by virtue of being big, it can accrue more and more, whether that be actual, you know, capital itself or cultural capital in the case of the art world, which I think sort of does straddle both ends of that spectrum too. And, and this is, yeah, this is exactly what the, the gallery system is there for. It's to create a ranking based on um, an arbitrariness of what constitutes a valuable artwork and what does not. And a, a lot of those standards are simply set be, uh, based on uh, your connection to the network. Um, and this was one of the instances where I was able to throw a wrench in the the net uh, the network because people weren't were where it had been stuck in the same old same old for so long that they had become they, they were essentially sleepwalking through their through their jobs or their uh, this the way this they were sleepwalking through their everyday lives and i was able to you know just by saying the right words able to slip it in there throw a wrench into the machinery um which to, to me, I thought uh, was, yeah, I would classify that as some sort of micro-revolutionary moment that, um, that basically what constitutes great art in this day and age has nothing to do with the, the actual value or, or the actual uh, imagery or the, 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 art, the artistic production. It's really about where you fit into the, the order of things, the, the hierarchy of what the system uh, determines and this is at the foundation ideologically determined what type of artwork is shown really depends on what's the ideology behind the work I think too though that that like your example is a really good one of kind of the I think the the germ of what I was getting at when I say that I think we need a new situationist international yeah, I mean that's yeah. the perfect like you're totally 
working to destabilize the entire, like the whole logic of the gallery, the economics of it, right? Right, right. Which it, I think it, even outside of your actual, like whatever work you were showing, like that is art in itself. That's like a, almost, I don't know if it's performance art quite, but it almost feels like maybe that's the most accurate way to, 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 to label it. <laughs> Well, it, it was a critique of the system. So I was using art. I was making artwork, and I still am making artwork. I was making artwork more, um, but I was seeing it as part, just the one segment of, of my whole uh, practice, my whole art practice as being art itself. So dealing with galleries on a daily basis, dealing with, uh, 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 um, I, I should mention, just as a side note, I ended up doing this over a year. I ended up getting a job at a university teaching art <laughs> based, based on what I had done. In ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, it, <laughs> thankfully, I, you know, it, so, yeah, I ended up getting a job out of it. And um, but it, <laughs> that's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> That's hacking the system, like. Right, right. Um, but again, it's to, it was simply to show that when you pitch the system ideo uh, ideologically congruent, so uh, what they want to hear and say, or want, what they want to hear and what they want you to say and what they want you to produce, uh, the system, um, uh, th this whole idea is very much arbitrary. Um, so what you see right now, um, in galleries, which kind of, we've kind of been regurgitating a lot of what went on with Dada and the abstract expressionist, sort of that whole modernist, the, the tail end of modernism. Uh, a lot of it has, after that has been pop art, which is kind of just a repetition, celebration of the marketplace. You know, money, uh, fame, um, uh, and kitsch stuff, cartoons, et cetera. But it, so it's been a lot of that. So that kind of has been filtered on and repeat, uh, done ad nauseum since then. And yeah, I was kind of going back to the situationist thing that you can throw wrenches into the system when the system is, has been stuck in autopilot for, so, for a very long time. Um, I, I just so happened that I noticed that, that notion that, uh, uh, the art world in parts of Canada is very much uh, an autopilot. It's so streamlined and so systemized that uh, people aren't. <laughs> sometimes you can get by the filters. Um, this was just one of those instances. And yeah, and I got a job out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so so that that's basically structural anarchism in a nutshell. It's pretty, um, um, yeah. Again, like it's a yeah, it's kind of a continuation of anarchism, parts of Marxism, parts of post uh, postmodernist theory, at, at at pushing it to its to its limit, sort of elaborating on what's been going on in the last. 30 years, but pushing it that extra step. So now we can bring it down to praxis and, and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Nice. Well, I think that's a that's a pretty good stopping point for us. I do want to allow you the opportunity. We gotta get we gotta get your Twitter followers up. We gotta so definitely let us <laughs> let us know where we can find you on uh, you Twitter find, and if yeah, you have you any find, other social media stuff or you want to mention uh, maybe I, other places where you could look at your art or anything like that. Definitely ex uh, go ahead and let us know. Yeah, uh, you can Google my name, Michel Luc Belmont, but I, I'm mostly I stick to Twitter. I really like Twitter, like you, and I find it's a good space to to be more expressive. I'm not on Facebook. I boycotted Facebook, and uh, you can get reach me at M Michel Luc Belm on Twitter. So at M I C H E L. L U C B E L L E M. Yeah, I believe that's it. Bell. Yeah. And I will definitely I'll put that I'll put that in the show notes. I'll also link to I guess the uh, the Amazon link to at least the uh, the structuralist or structural anarchist manifesto too, so that we have an idea of uh, you know since take a look at that and hopefully yeah, people will be I, interested. Uh, yeah. It's one of the only places through my publisher. It was one of the only places I, that could that he could get to distribute the manifesto. Yeah, um, I I didn't have much say in that. Normally, I would I wouldn't deal with Amazon, but this was one of the times where it was really out of my hands. I had to decide between okay, do I release the manifesto or uh, why not? And this was one of the, the main ways that my publisher wanted to release it. So it was kind of, that was kind of like out of my hands. <laughs> Just for anyone who thinks like there might be a contradiction here. Yeah. I mean, you've got to work within what exists, right? Right. But uh, yeah, Michelle, Luke, if you don't have anything else, I will uh, let you get on with the rest of your day. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anytime. Thanks uh, so much for making yourself available and for, uh, we'll have for chatting me up on Twitter. Okay. I, okay. We'll do. We'll have to do this in the future again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm sometimes I'm struggling to find guests, so definitely we'll hit you back up, and we can. Sounds good. Maybe set a. We can maybe find an article or kind of something narrowed down. We can kind of focus on. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm totally down for that. Sounds awesome. Well, once again, uh, Michelle Luc Belmer, thanks so much for joining me on podcast care of Cooper Cherry. We will be uh, signing off for the week. Thank you very the much. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is podcast care. state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. Nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in block work orange. <laughs>